When I hear about an ethical issue, I am, of course, trying to listen very intently and uh, because I'm curious about what's being said. But I think I'm also very curious about what is not being said and what needs to be discovered. You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. Before we get started, a quick note. The proposed Arlington County budget for 2019 would be catastrophic for Arlington Independent Media, our parent organization. Please join us in telling the county board how important AIM and WERA are to you. I've got a petition link up on my Facebook page. You can write to the county board. You can visit the county board's website and provide comments there. Arlington has built a reputation as a digital savvy community that values its diverse voices. Help us help Arlington stay true to those goals. It's WERA. We are Arlington. Don't forget to sign the petition. Write to your board. Thank you. And now on with the show. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. Today we're talking about ethics, which is all about the things we value most. So I've asked an expert in the field to help us find our way around the subject. Dr. Ellen Fox is a healthcare ethics consultant and chief architect of the Veterans Administration's award-winning integrated ethics model. I've learned a great deal from her over the two years that I've known her, and those conversations got me thinking about ethics in this curiosity context. My cell phone dictionary defines ethics as the moral principles that govern a person's behavior or the conducting of an activity. To take ethical actions anywhere, and maybe especially in the healthcare context, it seems to me you need two things. First, you need to know facts, the hard truth, at least to the extent that it can be known. And second, you need to know people's values. You need to know what really matters to them. And I don't know how you get to that critical information without a profound level of curiosity. In one of the most disarmingly powerful commencement addresses I've ever heard, James E. Ryan, the dean of Harvard Graduate School of Education, spoke of what he calls the five essential questions in life. Number five on his list is exactly this question that comes up in the ethical context, what truly matters. And when yours or anyone's health is on the line, that question gets very real. So how to help people think about all of this and make good decisions? It's a big question, Ellen Fox. I'm glad you're here to help me think about it. Welcome. I'm delighted to be here. So how does ethics help us get at what truly matters? Well, ethics is all about what truly matters. <laughs> you know, by definition, uh, you mentioned one definition, but another is it's a discipline that deals with what should be done in the setting of conflicts about values. And when I say values, I mean things that people value or things that matter to people. And so it's an ethical issue if values are in conflict. So for example, um, if you have um, an elderly parent that's living at home uh, and you have to make a decision about whether 
that person stays in your home or whether she goes to a skilled nursing facility, a nursing home, then you're thinking about, let's say, for example, she has um, a progressive dementing illness and things are becoming very difficult in the home. You're thinking maybe it would be better for your family if she could go to the nursing home, maybe not better for her. You very much value and care about your mother, but you also care about your family, so that's your conflict and values, and that's what makes it an ethical issue. So what does an ethicist do then with all of that? What's your job? Well, the field of ethics can be a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. So there's really a continuum from the theoretical to the practical. Mm -hmm. The definition you gave at the beginning having to do with moral principles and the dictionary definition tends to be a definition that comes from the theoretical side, the, the ethics as a subset of philosophy. Uh, what I do in healthcare ethics is at the opposite end of that spectrum. Right. It's a practical endeavor. It's really applied. It's out of out of the realm of theory and into the realm of very real. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's very practical. It's also multidisciplinary. It's not. Um, you can be a philosopher and do healthcare ethics, but more often it's doctors like me, nurses, sometimes uh, chaplains, social workers, people that have a healthcare background uh, are more commonly ethicists in a healthcare setting. Well, I, I, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think, you know, given that it also has to be so fact-based, a lot of it, I assume, has to really be informed by, well, what do we know about availability of options, course of treatment, you know, likely outcomes, those sorts of things. You have to have people with real information about those things in order to inform those decisions. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, good ethics relies on good facts first mm -hmm. and, and foremost, so absolutely. Uh, but you can also gain that knowledge through education. You don't have to be a healthcare provider in order to do ethics. But in the role of the of an ethics consultant, then you're you're sort of drawing all of that expertise in, and then and then what? Ethics consultation is really responding to questions in the healthcare setting. Questions having to do with what is right or what should be done, mm -hmm. typically for an individual patient, but may also be about uh, a policy decision or something that affects many um, patients. And so the consultant's job is to attempt to answer the question, mm -hmm. just like any consultant is called upon to, to uh, respond to a request. In healthcare ethics consultation, this typically involves collecting information firsthand. So that would include reading the patient's healthcare record, going to see the patient and talk to the patient, talk to family members, talk to healthcare providers, and then taking all that information and attempting to help the decision makers involved in the case uh, come to a good decision. And so notice it's not that the ethicist makes a decision mm -hmm. Or the ethicist will make a recommendation, but it's always up to the decision makers to make the decision. Uh, so when we were preparing for this conversation, you mentioned that there are some things that used to be ethical dilemmas that are no more. And I wonder if you could kind of mention those again, because I found that actually sort of an interesting thing is that 
these things do move. This is not a – these are not set in stone. So right, talk a about right. That. So um, I mentioned that an ethical issue involves conflict about values. So it follows that if there is no conflict about values, you no longer have an ethical issue. So there may be things that seem to be difficult at a certain point in time, but then they become settled. Mm-hmm. And after they're settled, then – they no longer create that pit in your stomach that you get when you have an ethical issue. They're no longer creating uh, conflict in people in terms of their decision-making. An example of that would be in the up until, I think, the 1960s. It was an ethical issue, the extent to which you should tell someone about their diagnosis and their prognosis right. if they had cancer, for example. And in other countries, that is still the case, that patients are not told. Hmm. But in this country, that has become a settled issue. And so it would uh, not be common to um, to be consulted on the ethical issue of should we tell this patient, this competent patient, that they have cancer. That would just be an accepted practice. And it would only come up as an ethical issue if you had a conflict with perhaps, say, a culture that had a different view on that issue. So why is ethics consultation in healthcare important? Well, I think um, it's because people have issues that keep them up at night, mm-hmm. that tear at their heartstrings. Patients, families, uh, healthcare providers, these are some of the most trying and challenging times of their lives. These decisions are life-changing, as you mentioned, sometimes even life and death. Uh, they're going to have to live with themselves and their decisions for the rest of their lives, yeah. and they feel that they need help. So I think that's why it's important and it's needed. Yeah. And so how do you use curiosity in your work? Well, first of all, I find ethics to be inherently fascinating. Uh-huh. Um, when I hear about an ethical issue, I am, of course, trying to listen very intently and Uh, because I'm curious about what's being said. But I think I'm also very curious about what is not being said and what needs to be discovered, Mm. because um, it's never what you think it's going to be when you first hear about a case or an issue. Often um, the facts are incomplete. Often the facts are not true. Because you're hearing only the perspective of one person when you first hear about a case. I mean, if you think about, for example, our court system, there's two sides representing the two different perspectives in that because uh, even the facts are going to be different depending on which side you're on. And so you have to have a healthy skepticism when you hear about an ethical case or issue that whoever's presenting this information to you has a particular perspective and the way they are presenting the facts and the the facts that they understand and that they choose to convey to you because they think they're important are all filtered through one lens. Mm -hmm. And because it's an ethics issue, you, by definition, are going to have conflicting perspectives probably on this issue. So you need to um, not just accept at face value, the information that's presented, but um, 
go beyond that and think about what is the other perspective? What are, what are the other facts that I'm not hearing about or what is wrong with yeah. the facts I'm hearing? And, um, and so I bring curiosity to the exploration of the facts and taking uh, you know, a rigorous approach to making sure that the facts are accurate, um, but also to the values perspectives. And so you need to hear firsthand what the different perspectives on the case are, and you will always learn something by doing that. So you almost literally wrote the book on a system of ethics in the country's largest healthcare system at the VA. Uh, tell me more about what prompted your work with integrated ethics. So integrated ethics, I should probably start by explaining what that is. Yeah. Um, it's a model for ethics programs that I developed when I was director of the National Center for Ethics in Healthcare, which is within the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, and I would say two things prompted me to develop integrated ethics. Uh, one is that the recognition that um, the most important aspects of healthcare, things like quality and patient safety, for example, um, are that there are very sophisticated methods and systems that are in place in healthcare organizations for managing those things to ensure that you get the desired results. Um, but the same was not at all true for ethics. So mm-hmm. I set out really to change that mm-hmm. through integrated ethics to develop a model that would apply a apply systems thinking, apply quality improvement methods, lessons from leadership studies, um, uh, knowledge about culture and how it works in organizations, um, and um, to apply all of these things to give healthcare organizations a way to systematically and effectively manage ethics in healthcare. Another thing that prompted me I would say, is the realization that um, if your goal is to improve ethical practices, um, it's important to recognize that, you know, people don't get up in the morning and say, I think I'll be unethical today. (laughs) You know, everybody thinks they're ethical and they are trying to be ethical. And if you run into a problem in an organization or any setting, really, uh, it's very unusual for it to be due to an unethical person or a bad apple. Mm. It's almost always something about the system or the setting in which they are making decisions that is influencing them to act in ways that are less desirable. Mm-hmm. And so the concept behind integrated ethics is that you you change the organization and the setting to make it easier to do the right thing. So Systems need to think about these things. So do we as individuals. Are there questions we should be asking ourselves to similarly prepare? Um, sure. I, well, for one thing, I think when you're thinking about a decision relating to health care, it's very helpful to think about the goals, mm-hmm. the goals of care. Um, often when decisions are made, those things are not being made explicit, and that leads to misunderstanding or bad decisions. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, 
if a doctor says a patient's prognosis is poor, well, that is, uh, first of all, that's not a factual statement. It's a value judgment. Mm -hmm. So when the doctor says the prognosis is poor, the question is poor relative to what, but also relative to what goal. Yeah. It might be that the doctor thinks that it would not be worth continuing this treatment or this therapy if the patient were not going to regain their former level of health or maybe uh, they're going to permanently be um, unconscious or unable to interact with their family or whatever that doctor's assumptions about what would be a good outcome would be. And maybe the family doesn't share that. Maybe the family thinks uh, as long as uh, the heart's still beating... As long as he's alive. Yeah. uh, We're willing to continue the treatment, and we think that would be Mm -hmm. worthwhile. So so that gets back to the issue of goals of care. Mm -hmm. What goal would be acceptable? What are we trying to achieve? And then the doctor can can, um, help to explain which goals are realistic but also, you know, what the likelihood is of achieving various goals, and what, um, you know, what treatments might achieve. Right. Or those wh- goals. Which of those, which of those outcomes, you know, sort of what's the relative degree of likelihood, and and which among them are acceptable or unacceptable. So the other type of question I think we should be asking around our healthcare is, um, you know, what are what do other people think? Um, mm-hmm. So often, you know, we. Um, we have a perspective that is informed by a certain set of facts and very strongly informed by our emotions. And we don't always recognize or give justice to the opposite point of view. Um, We have all kinds of defense mechanisms in place to make us not listen and not you know, take seriously the opposite perspective. And so I think one thing, when you're facing a dilemma it um, and you don't know the right thing to do, it can be very helpful to really try to um, argue the opposite side. Mm-hmm. Um, and one way to do that is to find people that have the opposite perspective. Um, mm-hmm. In the healthcare arena, it's it's often the case that people will tell you what you want to hear. You can be surprised if you really get to uh, what they think uh-huh. because they may not tell, tell you readily, uh, especially if they don't agree with what you're doing. Or if, they, or if there's division within the family, you know, because you can imagine that not everybody's necessarily on the same page at any given moment in these things. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I was... Um, Last night, as a matter of fact, I was watching Breaking Bad, uh-huh. which uh, I feel like I need to catch up on some of these, uh, you know. <laughs> Cultural literacy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And there's a dilemma in there early in the show, which is absolutely classic, where um, the main character, Walter, uh, has cancer and he uh, he doesn't want chemotherapy, and his wife and his family are trying to convince him to mm. take the chemotherapy. And his wife stages this intervention where everyone gets to say what they really think. Uh. And 
suddenly another member of the family is saying, well, I don't think he should get the chemotherapy. And everybody's so shocked that she would say that uh-huh. because the wife, you know, really thinks he should. There's and family then, orthodoxy. Yeah. yeah. And then when he finally speaks up and explains his point of view, I think it opens everybody's eyes because no one had really ever listened or asked about his point of view. So it just, you know, it was a good illustration, I think, of how everyone's emotions are so um, tied up in their position that uh, it's difficult to really open yourself up to understand uh, the full range of perspectives. So the advice would be really to, you know, figure out a way to um, to do that and to allow people to say their truth mm-hmm. um, and make it clear that you want to hear different perspectives from your own uh, because we often don't have that luxury. And you have to understand the full range in order to be confident that your choice is the right one for you. Hmm. I love uh, I love that as an example because I think what it does is it reminds us that we're actually familiar with these ethical dilemmas through popular media, if not our own experience, um, and that and that those are opportunities for us to kind of take a dry run at some of these things and think a little bit about, oh, well, how would I feel about that? And how might we, as a family, as a partnership, whatever, grapple with what may be really profound differences of feeling in those situations? Absolutely. And I think so often, you know, the really compelling uh, stories are stories that have ethical issues. So are you available to help people if they have questions like this? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, my work as an ethics consultant um, typically involves um, helping organizations such as healthcare organizations or universities. Uh, but I have also helped some individuals and some um, law firms and companies and so on. So um, I am available. My, the primary focus of my work is on helping to manage ethics in either individual cases or within organizations. Mm-hmm. Great. And I will put um, a link to some of that on the Facebook page. So thank you. Well, thank you. But before you go, I do have the big jar of wannabe analogies. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. All right. So reach in. Take a slip of paper. You're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on your slip of paper. I'm going to take one for me, one for the audience. You can go first or I can go. <laughs> okay. So mine is potato chips. <laughs> How is curiosity like potato chips? How is curiosity like potato chips? Uh, well, they're really crunchy. Uh, let's see. Well, I think potato chips, let's see, they, um, if you just look at a potato chip, um, it looks simple. It's, um, it's familiar. You know exactly what it is. You know what it's going to taste like. Um, but curiosity, like potato chips, causes you to dive deeper and ask questions that are not obvious uh, immediately. So... I'd be curious about what kind of uh, fat is in those potato chips, uh, what they've been cooked in, uh, 
you know, was um, uh, are they low calorie or otherwise, which I can probably pretty much tell you they're not. (laughs) (laughs) Is there such a thing as a low calorie potato chip? I'm waiting to hear that. I have to say, when I when you told me about this exercise, I was hoping I could find something that killed a cat. But I, <laughs> I don't know. Potato chips might not be so good for cats. There you go. That's great. That's great. So I have a bird. How is curiosity like a bird other than cats killing birds? Um, I would say that curiosity is like a bird uh, because it – it, it, it can kind of fly around um, and um, it, uh, you know, I think a bird's is sort of picking up all sorts of stuff to eat and curiosity is sort of voracious that way. It's sort of constantly consuming the way birds are kind of constantly consuming. And, uh, and birds come in, you know, their plumage is kind of of every imaginable sort and I think curiosity takes a lot of different forms. So I guess I would... That's how curiosity is like a bird. And audience, um, <laughs> how is curiosity like a caterpillar? Let me know. Hashtag analogy. How is curiosity like a caterpillar? Well, Ellen, thank you very much for this um, and and for sort of opening this question of sort of bringing curiosity into something that I think is a really profoundly important context. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. You've been listening to WERA LP 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great programs here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can find all my shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious, or on my website at choosetobecurious.com. Check out the links to the VA's Integrated Ethics, uh, James Ryan's Five Questions, Um, and other resources available on my Facebook page. And I hope you'll follow me on Twitter at choose number two, letter B, curious. Don't forget to send us your caterpillar analogy, hashtag analogy. Special thanks to my guest, Ellen Fox. I hope you'll join me next time when we go from the personal to the global. In honor of Earth Day, Miriam Gennari, Arlington's own styrofoam mom, and I take a look at her curiosity about recycling that went from caring about answers she couldn't find to sustainability advocacy. We're going curiously green. Until then, choose to be curious. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com.